Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we are back in the podcast studio to share with you a special episode and a repeat guest. On today's episode, this is a new series for 2022, where we will be sitting down every quarter with author and cancer survivor, Cynthia Hayes of The Big Ordeal. If you remember, Cynthia was a guest on the Project Purple podcast back in 2021 and talked about her book, The Big Ordeal, on understanding and managing the psychological turmoil of cancer. This year for 2022, we are excited to bring Cynthia back, not only on the Project Purple podcast, but to work with her over the coming months to discuss many topics in dealing and navigating cancer. Um, on this episode, we kind of tease into there's five main topics uh, that we'll be discussing over the year. Uh, the first is the overview of why cancer is so emotional and what to expect. The second is how cancer interferes with our emotional and physical intimate relationships. The third is exercise and how that impacts cancer. The fourth is supportive communication with a cancer patient, what a patient wants and doesn't want to hear from friends and loved ones. And then our last topic is going to be on self-advocacy. So today we kind of tease these five subjects as we go into the year. We are excited to have Cynthia back. And with that, here's Cynthia Hayes on the Project Purple Podcast. Hey, Cynthia, great to have you back on the Project Purple podcast. Hi, Dino. It's great to be here. Well, we're excited to have you back. This, as we said in the opening, is part of a special series this year where we hope to bring Cynthia back on a quarterly basis with also possibly some special guests to talk about topics. And we're excited to kind of give an overview today on all those topics. So with that, Cynthia, let's get started on uh, on this overview of, of what we're going to be discussing throughout the year. Well, I think the um, the, the key takeaway from um, this podcast series is the idea that cancer is emotional. Um, and we think about it as a physical disease, but it actually manifests in um, changes in our brain chemistry that create an emotional ride for us all. Um, and because of um, societal stigmas about talking about emotional health and societal stigmas around talking about cancer, we tend not to talk about this important part of the cancer experience that in fact we all share. And so we all feel as if we are alone and as if we're somehow responsible for or um, uh, weak because we feel emotional around our cancer. Um, but in fact, it's a, it's a pretty common experience within cancer. Yeah. And, I, and I've got to imagine, I mean, as we were talking here before we hit record, you know, this pandemic that we've been in the last two years, uh, almost fully two years here, um, he, I was just talking to a, a patient the other day, you know, again, now their center has gone to new mandates because of the uptick in Omicron um, or the variants that are out there that now, again, they're getting dropped off at the front door 
and going in by themselves. Yes. Which is, yes. you know, I mean, the, the last two years have just been hell for anyone battling cancer. I mean, I know we see it here with, you know, in particular with pancreatic cancer, but, you know, and, and I think it's almost twofold too, Cynthia, because not only do you have patients going through that ordeal of cancer today, in today's environment, in today's society, with the restrictions and the regulations that are in place, but then you have this concern it's almost like PTSD for a lot of people where they've gone through the cancer journey and it, and it may not have been in the last two years. It may have been five years ago. It may have been 10 years ago. And now you have this heightened sense of alertness again. But then again, it's almost like coming back to your original journey because of you know the pandemic. I think that's exactly right. And and I think that so many of the circumstances are the same in that, um, you know, in cancer, uh, we have a tremendous amount of uncertainty um, as we do in COVID. In cancer, we have this enormous sense of of isolation. And, you know, now with COVID, we have this real, you know, physical um, uh, isolation. Um, uh, We have tremendous fear uh, with both of these um, diseases because of the uncertainty and so much that is unknown. And then this, this long um, roller coaster of, um, you know, changing information and um, waiting for clarity and, um, you know, up and down, up and down. Um, it, I, I, I think COVID is very much like uh, cancer. And uh, as you said, for many um, people, it is a, a PTSD all over again um, sort of experience. Uh Yeah, it's fascinating how that's occurred uh, throughout our society here and across the world, Uh, you know, clearly from, you know, seeing stuff on social media, not that social media is the end all be all, uh, but from just, you know, we we follow so many patients, patient advocates, I should call them throughout the, the world that are, you know, battling through pancreatic cancer, but then also have battled that continue to advocate and just to see how they are dealing with it in a day-to-day situational awareness with the pandemic. It's just so interesting. And it just, it really kind of speaks to the testament of, you know, your book and the work that you've done and and the awareness that you've created and, and, you know, making people aware of these things. Um, and, the reason I say this is because I know we talk a lot about people in it right now, right? Um, and that's important, but there's this whole other subgroup of people who have gone through it, you being one of them, right? So you can speak from that testament of, you know, people that have gone through it that still have concerns and have that PTSD and are still, you know, almost dealing with it as if they were in it again. And all over again, absolutely. And I think that, you know, in large part that um, so much of the fear comes from the fact that our bodies betrayed us um, and, you know, we're not supposed to get cancer and then we've got cancer. And so we no longer trust in our bodies. And it takes such a long time for us to regain that trust in our bodies um, after a cancer diagnosis. And so it's almost as if you need, you know, repeat exposure to, um, clean scans and healthy living and, um, uh, you know, being told that everything is, is fine. Um, and, 
you know, eventually, um, you know, five years, 10 years after um, diagnosis, you've had enough of those, you know, positive experiences that the fear of cancer and cancer's recurrence um, goes away. But, you know, for many people, it persists longer than the um, no evidence of disease period does. And so that, that anxiety stays with us. And so then you add in a new, a new threat, um, like COVID and it's, uh, yeah, it just takes us right back to, um, those, uh, initial fears and, and uncertainties. So yeah, I think PTSD is a great way of, of talking about it um, for all of us, um, for all of us who have ever had a cancer diagnosis. And this is, and I'll give us a, a selfish plug here. This is why I feel like this series that we're going to be doing is so critical, right? Like the timing of everything. I know we we talked about this last year, bringing you back because we had such a, a positive response to the first time having you on. Um, and, you know, I wanted to kind of evolve this even further, giving out your book to a ton of patients, um, you know, so th this is really I'm super excited, super stoked that we're doing this series. I'm excited to see where this goes. And I think it's just so timely and so important for people on both spectrums, right? We've got people that are going through it and then people that have gone through it that can learn so much from this podcast series. So thank you for coming back. So let's talk about this first topic here of, um, you know, why cancer is so emotional and, and what to expect. And just, we won't go into too too much, but let's tease this out for our audience so that they listen into sure. the next episode. Sure, absolutely. Well, I think the um, important thing to remember about um, about cancer um, being emotional is that it's a, it's really it's a combination of a lot of external forces and some very specific internal things that go on to make cancer so emotional. It starts with the fact that for millennia, a cancer diagnosis has meant death. Um, there was just a certainty. You got cancer, you were going to die of cancer. Um, now that's no longer, um, the case. I mean, there's been tremendous advancements in, in cancer, uh, detection and cancer treatment. That means that many more people are surviving, but still what we have, um, sort of baked into the conversation is this, this fear of death that comes from, um, uh, you know, just being reinforced over the millennia. Um, we also have a, a sense of um, responsibility. And of course, you know, none of us is really responsible for our own cancer. We all know people who, you know, have smoked three packs a day and never developed lung cancer, or people who have, you know, eaten right and exercised every day and done everything perfectly uh, all of their lives and still get cancer. Um, but we do feel some sense of responsibility. And a lot of that is also reinforced by the media or, you know, people saying um, um, unthoughtful things when they hear about our diagnosis or whatever. So there's this, this sense that somehow we did something to cause our cancer. Um, another uh, problem, as I mentioned earlier, is that we have this, um, this societal stigma around mental health issues, and we tend not to understand that, um, you know, our mental health and our physical health are actually very closely related and that, that, you know, our mental health is often driven by, uh, by brain chemistry, which is influenced by so many different factors. So we tend not to be able to talk about our emotions and our, uh, our mental health, which adds to the sense of, gee, there must be something wrong with me. Um, there's also the fact that when we get a cancer diagnosis, 
all of a sudden we're thrown into the uh, the hands of a uh, a brand new doctor. It's not our doctor that we've built a relationship with over the years who is going to be helping us through this. But this is a total stranger who now we have to put our our, our life in the hands of. Um, add to that then the whole complexity around the diagnosis. You know, you get a, a test result that's a little wonky, and then you got to wait, and you got to get a scan, and then you got to wait, and you got to get a this and a that, and it can take weeks, months um, to figure out what exactly is going on. And often it's not until um, there's a, a surgery and, you know, they open you up and they see what's really going on, that there's any sort of a, of a clarity around what's, um, what's actually happening. Um, and then the same with, with treatment. They, you know, they recommend a treatment, but you don't know when they start that treatment. Is it going to work? How is it going to make you feel? What's it going to do to, you know, so there's just more and more uncertainty. Um, and then, you know, finally, unfortunately, our medical care um, system means that we get, you know, 10 minutes with our doctor every time we see them, which doesn't allow for the kinds of conversation that we would really want to have to say, you know, why am I feeling this way? Um, you know, what can we do about it? And and how do we make things change? Um, and uh, those are sort of some of the external forces. But on the inside, we often have a lot of um, physiological changes that we don't understand, um, you know, but all of a sudden our, our body and our brains are behaving differently. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I, I came to understand after talking with a, a neuroscientist is that um, cancer causes inflammation um, and that inflammation gets translated in the brain as um, sickness behavior, um, as go back to bed, pull the covers over your head. Don't come out no matter what you do, um, and you know tends towards uh, depression. So we have this uh, this inflammatory process going on, started by the cancer itself. The presence of cancer causes inflammation, but often many of the treatments that we um, take for cancer cause uh, an increase in inflammation. And you know some um, treatments, you know more so than others. Um, but then, as a treatment is effective, as a treatment is killing off cancer cells that also increases uh, inflammation because the body has to absorb all of those those dead um, cancer cells or hair follicle cells or whatever else is being killed off by the uh, by the treatment. So we've got all of that going on. Um, often treatment, um, whether it's surgery or chemo or radiation, causes a number of um, hormonal changes as well. Um, often steroids are part of uh, treatment. That's a hormone. Um, often, emo cause a woman to go into uh, menopause if she's not there already. That's a hormonal change. These things just radically upset the balance of our brain chemistry and um, contribute uh, enormously to um, uh, you know to our um, emotional response to the disease. Um, you know, so many times uh, chemotherapy can be uh, an androgen suppressor. Um, and that'll make, uh, you know, make us all feel low energy. Um, and of course, there is tremendous amount of, of fatigue and stress. You know, you were, life was going on at, at one level. And now all of a sudden, um, you've got this, uh, 
this disease that is suppressing your energy. You've got this treatment that is suppressing your energy and you've got this enormous stress that has made your cortisol levels uh, increase and your um, ability to think decrease um, at the same time that you're, you're dealing with all of this uncertainty. So there's a lot going on that makes cancer very emotional. Um, but most uh, oncologists don't talk about the emotional side effects leaving us as patients to think that we are alone or weak or it's somehow our fault that we're feeling what we're feeling. Yeah. And yet often the patient uh, patients go through a very similar pattern of emotions. It's almost like as if um, the oncologist could give everyone a hall pass. I use the yeah. term, right? Like in, in yeah. you know, I think as society, you know, we, we, you mentioned mental health in the very beginning and that that it's like taboo. It's so taboo. It's so taboo. Even here we are in 2022 where we live in a cancel culture and we have all these crazy things that happen. Mental health is still so taboo and it's still so such a stigma. And it's almost like, and I say hall pass, like if your oncologist gave you the hall pass, but then thinking about that, it still doesn't give them, i.e. the patient, the acceptance from society to say, hey, I'm not okay, like emotionally. Right. And as you mentioned, you have all these changes happening, none of which, you know, probably 90% you can't control anyways, right? Because the hormones, the drugs, the treatments, like they're gonna do what they're gonna do. And yeah, like the doctors, and I guess we're gonna, be, I'm gonna beat up a little bit on doctors right now on oncologists, like, I know they, they probably do talk about this a bit, but again, like you said, 10 minutes, 15 minutes max, you know, mm -hmm. you get a pamphlet of what to expect, not when you're expecting, but what to expect with cancer. You know, maybe we need to, and this is like the brain idea, like the whiteboard idea coming out here, Cynthia is, it's almost like a guy, like, and I, and I'm not trying to please listeners. I'm not trying to be insensitive at any, at any means here, but it's almost like, um, you know, they used to have those like uh, guide for dummies for like, you know, programming 101. It's almost like if we were to create like a guide that every patient should get, cancer patient, like a guide of how you will feel emotionally and it's okay to feel this way, right? right. It's okay to process these emotions and to have these kind of thoughts, right? Like this is normal. Um, but the, the oncologist is not going to sit down and talk to you about that, right? Like that's yeah. the, that's the farthest thing from the oncologist's mind. Like, and again, this is not a knock on oncologists, but the way the system is set up is they're going to call for a psych valve, right? Like, oh, you're you're feeling depressed. Let's get our psychologist in to talk to you about that. Oh, you're not eating. Let's get our nutritionist in to talk to you about that. But you know, all these you're you're on all these medications. Your body is having all these physiological and and these changes that are happening that are impacting your mental state. But no one's giving you the that that hall pass to be able to to say like, hey, it's okay, right? Yeah. Well, I, th I think that's exactly right. And, I, and you know, so often um, we get, you know, literature from the doctor that says, you know, expect to be nauseous, you know, prepare for hair loss, you know, whatever. It doesn't say prepare for emotional turmoil. Um, it doesn't say everybody or at least 70%. I mean, there have been a, a number of different, you know, studies done and, and whatnot. And, 
you know, as much as 70% of cancer patients feel some sort of emotional distress uh, during their cancer experience. Um, I don't know who those other 30% are because I cannot imagine going through cancer without feeling um, emotional distress. But, but because we don't talk about it, every single one of us thinks that we are the only ones that, um, you know, and, and part of it is, you know, we, we, We've been taught to, you know, oh, you got to be brave. Um, oh, you got to be, you know, stay positive. And oh, let's go, you know, march for, um, you know, for, uh, you know, uh, pink survivors or, or whatever. Um, and so we see smiling cancer patients. We don't see crying cancer patients. We see people being brave, um, showing up for chemo. We don't see the fear of chemo and, um, and the, the, you know, emotional wretchedness of, um, you know, the four or five days after chemo. Um, so, you know, I think the media has done us a disservice. I think that, you know, the medical community has done us a disservice and just, you know, society in general by not being comfortable talking about emotions. Um, um, and yet, you know, it's pretty predictable and, and granted we're all different. We all, experience our emotions differently, both in terms of intensity and timing, how we express them. Um, and our emotions um, are certainly influenced by our pre-cancer experiences and our personalities and our, um, you know, DNA and, and uh, what we lived through as children. But that doesn't mean that we don't all have them. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, we can get through cancer without feeling shock and dismay at the time of diagnosis without feeling overwhelming stress at the time of being told, okay, you need to find a, um, a surgeon, uh, you know, without feeling overwhelming um, uh, confusion um, and, and fear at the time of starting treatment, uh, without feeling depressed, without feeling fatigued. So we all feel these things, but we don't all allow ourselves to own those feelings. We don't all allow ourselves to communicate those feelings. And so even those around us, those who love us, might not know what we're really going through, much less the larger friend and um, family and uh, workplace environment that, um, that hasn't had a cancer diagnosis themselves. So it's, um, it, it's, a, it's a tough challenge for cancer patients because we don't have that openness of, of conversation about emotional health. Well, we hope we change that here on this podcast, right? Getting this out, raising the, uh, the volume on that, that messaging and saying that it's okay. Yeah. Our next subject, which kind of parlays into, and I mean, these all kind of connect, right? Um, but, you know, I think you, you mentioned a little bit of this and, you know, how cancer interferes with our emotional and physical intimate relationships and what to do about it. And, and this is so critical. I mean, you know, from an emotional standpoint, physical uh, standpoint, I, I mean, uh, we're all physical beings, right? I, I don't, I mean, even introverts, right, in some ways need some sort of physical intimate relationships and that and that could be and I'm not picking on introverts here but you know people could be you know really engaged and have a physical relationship with you know um working out or you know working out by themselves or something that they do just by themselves um but cancer interferes with that 
right? And, and we just talked about, you know, the emotional stuff, but physical, intimate relationships, um, you know, again, this kind of the sequence of of subjects here is is poignant and how this connects to each other. But you know, the those emotions and everything happening internally. Um, you mentioned hair loss. I know for a lot of people, you know, whether it's hair loss, whether it's weight loss, um, whether it's just that no one likes to feel that yucky feeling that we feel when we're sick. And naturally when you have chemotherapy, regardless of the cancer, most people are going to have like a yucky, icky, nasty feeling. Um, and that impacts you physically and how you feel with your relationships um, and naturally emotionally. So let, let's talk a little bit about that, the subject. Yeah, I, I think it's such an important one. And, and, you know, we have physically intimate relationships, but those physically intimate relationships also start with an emotional intimacy. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of a lot more relationships where we have emotional intimacy than where we also have physical intimacy, but the problems are there for all of them. And I think that one of the biggest problems is that because of the inability to communicate about emotions freely, um, even with those that we love, uh, we tend to hold back a little bit about what we're feeling. And that holding back creates a space in a relationship that grows over time. So, um, you know, when I was going through uh, my cancer, I uh, my I was lucky enough that my um, daughter, who had just graduated from college, was home for the year. Now she was home for the year because she was um, working for one of her professors, studying for um, the uh, the LSATs, applying to uh, law school. The last thing in the world she thought she wanted to do was take care of her mother with cancer. So I felt like I couldn't burden her with everything that was going on uh, with me. So I would cry every day, but in the shower where nobody could tell. Um, and so I was holding back some of that, um, some of that emotion. And so from her perspective, everything was fine. Mom was doing great. Um, so I allowed some distance to occur in that relationship. Um, and that's the start of um, a, a, an emotional break in intimacy. Um, add to that, that self-image um, factor, whether it's hair loss or weight loss or weight gain or ugly scars or whatever. Yeah, we don't, we don't feel good. Um, another thing is concern for our um, friends, partners, et cetera, on the other side of the relationship. Um, we're worried about how they're going to feel if uh, if we're uh, not doing well, um, and um, uh, because of our concern for them, we tend not to uh, communicate as much about ourselves and our own fears um, as as we might otherwise. Um, and then often there's this sense of of dependency or. Um, uh, sense that we don't deserve more attention, more, um, we don't deserve to be a burden any longer. Um, so we have all of these emotional things uh, going on. At the same time, we have tremendous fatigue. We have those hormonal changes. We have those sensational changes in our bodies as a result of those hormonal changes or as a result of scarring or neuropathy from treatment. Um, we can have, you know, scars and drains and ostomies and other, you know, 
uh, unpleasant physical things that can get in the way of our, our physical uh, intimacy, but can also get in the way of our emotional intimacy because of how they make us feel about ourselves. So our relationships just become so much more complex um, as a result of, uh, of having um, cancer and, and cancer treatment. Um, and we tend not to be uh, aware of um, that uh, that division in our relationship, that that space that grows. Um, and you know when we're finally at a place of, of healing and wanting to reestablish those relationships, we have a lot of ground we have to make up for um, because of that of that enormous gap. Do you think what happens, and then this is something that just came up in my head is, you know, they, they talk about creating habits, right? And, and so you go through that, your body goes through all these changes, you have all these emotional things happening behind the scenes. And then, you know, naturally, if there's, you know, physical things that are happening, but they talk about, you know, seven days to form new habits. And do you think like, in cancer, it's like, all right, so seven days of like this emotional roller coaster because of the, the medication, because of the situation, maybe because of a surgery, because of hair loss. And then that becomes kind of the new norm. That's exactly right. That becomes the new norm. And it, it takes, you know, a lot of people think that the day that treatment is done, you know, cancer's over, we're better. You know, mm -hmm. or the day we get the first no evidence of disease report or whatever, cancer's over. But in fact, um, the physical recovery process can take um, uh, six to 18 months um, after cancer. And the emotional um, recovery process can't really happen until that physical recovery process has occurred. So if you have relationships that got... Um, stressed um, due to uh, to cancer it can be a, a you know a couple of year challenge to get them back to um, to where they were um, because those habits have been formed now based on the fear based on the um, the challenging self-image based on the elevated inflammation in the body and the um, uh, physiological changes and and changes to brain chemistry as a result of all of that. Um, and so it's, it's a, it's a long process. Um, and it, it takes more than seven days to reverse those habits once they've been, uh, once they've been formed, unfortunately. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's, it's so crazy. Um, you know, you, you try to think about timelines, right. And then, you know, to hear you say six to 18 months, um, yeah, it doesn't take seven days. It'll take a lot yeah. longer. Yeah. Which is a good segue into the next subject, which is exercise and the role in exercise aiding physical and that emotional recovery and, and reducing the reoccurrence from cancer as well, which is important. So let's talk a little bit about the next topic, which is exercise. Yeah. You know, um, I discovered exercise late in life. <laughs> which is okay. Hey, that's okay. So it, 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 as long as you start, right? Like, like that's the important as thing. As, you, as long as you start. And I, and I think that that's really the important um, thing to understand that there's so much research that shows that um, exercise can reduce stress and improve um, your mood. Um, but more importantly, it 
it really supports your um, uh, your immune system, um, and it also helps to reduce that excess inflammation um, that occurred as a result of um, of cancer and, and cancer treatment. So it's just a, a it's a tremendous benefit to us, and of course, it's one of the hardest things to do. You know, the elevated um, inflammation signals our brain to go back to bed. Um, it takes six to 18 months to get rid of that um, elevated uh, inflammation. And yet we want to convince our bodies to get out there and, and, and move, um, you know, three weeks after surgery. And as soon as the, the doctor gives us the okay. And so you're fighting your brain chemistry the entire time. And yet exercise can help to flip that brain chemistry uh, better than anything else. Um, it's uh, it's one of those things that, you know, we can't imagine doing it. And then once we do it, um, we can't imagine ever not doing it again. Um, it's, uh, you know, whether it's aerobic exercise or yoga or walking or, you know, lifting weights or whatever, it's going to benefit your body and it's going to benefit um, uh your um, re, re, uh, your recovery is going to reduce the likelihood of uh, recurrence, um, and it's going to help deal with uh, neuropathy and lymphedema. Um, you know, and now nobody should just go out and start running marathons um, in the middle of, of cancer treatment. But you know, talking with your doctor um, about exercise early on and then figuring out a way to incorporate exercise into your cancer treatment schedule as well as into your recovery schedule after cancer treatment. It's just it's just incredible what it can do to help you um, physically recover and emotionally cope with, uh, with cancer. And to your point, I, I think, you know, like you said, you didn't start exercise until later in life. Not to pick on you here, Cynthia, but you know, I, I think everyone needs to find what works for them, right? Like, I'm glad you said, like, not everyone needs to go out and run a marathon. I know we we do a lot of that, and we talk a lot about that here on the Project Purple podcast. But you know, that's not what we mean when exercise. And I, I think that comes back to a little bit about like the the emotional piece of this and, and the psychological piece is I think like, again, societal norms is like, oh, you got to go to the gym. You got to join a gym. You got to lift weights. You got to do this. You got to do that. But exercise can be, like you said, it could be yoga. You know, it, it could be, you know, just taking that walk every day or walking the dogs every day, just getting out, getting the body yeah. moving, um, building healthy habits. And then eventually, you know, that may lead to maybe jogging, you know, 5k. It doesn't mean you have yeah. to go sign up for it. You could just do it in your neighborhood, right? You know, if yeah. that's what is your exercise, right? It, it could be, you know, people get into Pilates or yoga or, you know, uh, thoughtful meditation and breathing exercises that, you know, uh, help reduce the stress and the inflammation and, you know, make you stronger, um, yeah. you know, mentally and physically. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that there are two components to, um, to exercise. One is, um, the, the physical aspect, you know, when you elevate your, um, your heart rate, uh, you're telling your body, um, make more red blood cells. Um, and of course, most cancer treatments cause our red blood cells and our white blood cells and a lot of other cells to decline. Um, and so, 
exercising, uh, doing aerobic exercise, telling your body to uh, make more red blood cells helps to um, to counter um, that feeling of um, fatigue that we all experience because of, of, re- of a reduction in red blood cells. You know, talking about marathons, marathoners often like to train at elevation because there's less oxygen in the air. And so that tells their bodies oh, make more red blood cells because we're not getting enough oxygen. Well, it's the same thing with um, uh, exercising after uh, after ke- uh, chemo or any type of cancer treatment that reduces your, uh, your red blood cell count. By moving, you tell your body, make more red blood cells. And so you recover a little bit more quickly from um, what your uh, uh, blood has done as a result of that treatment. Um, and you know, walking has been shown to be one of the most effective um, exercises. It, all we need is, you know, 30 minutes a day of walking and we can stay perfectly, uh, perfectly fit. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, as you said, there is a lot of encouragement culturally to go to the gym or to take a yoga class or whatever. Whatever we find that motivates us um, is a good thing. And often walking the dog is a, is a great excuse. Um Get a big dog. Mine's too little. He just wants to you know, go to the end of the driveway and back. Yeah, yeah. And that that and on that note, that could be the um, encouragement that you may need is to get a dog <laughs> on top right. of exercise. You know, to, to force right. you to get out and exercise, uh, and get a dog that that wants to get out there and, and make sure that they're walked every day or or even yeah. eventually build up to a jog. Um, well, you know, it's interesting because pets um, confer so many benefits uh, to us. Um, having a pet and and like cuddling or stroking or petting your pet actually um, releases oxytocin, which is the um, hormone that, um, you know, uh, is released when a woman is breastfeeding her, uh, her newborn child. It's a bonding uh, thing. It's also a very soothing, um, uh, hormone, um, in the brain. So, you know, anybody, I mean, men, men also have oxytocin and, uh, release oxytocin when they, um, are playing with their pets, caring for a child or a pet causes one to release oxytocin, which helps improve brain chemistry. So there are multiple benefits to having a, uh, having a dog, um, but only if you um, can feel loving towards it and, um, and take care of it appropriately, of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. So our next topic, now we, we shift a little bit um, and talk about supportive communication with a cancer patient and what patients wants and doesn't want to hear from friends and loved ones, which is such a, a critical piece. I know we we get that question often, uh, maybe because it's the most easiest one, because uh, the other three that we just mentioned, you know, are, are a little bit, as we mentioned, um, people I think are a little bit more reserved. Um, but when it comes to communication, you know, from friends and, and loved ones, uh, this is such a critical piece uh, because I, I think again, it's the number one question that we get here at Project Purple on the phone lines is like, hey, I just had uh, my neighbor just got diagnosed or my my brother-in-law just got diagnosed. Like, what do I do? What do I say? Yeah. And and I think it um, it is so closely related to the um, uh, emotional experience of a cancer patient. And because we don't um, understand um, what's going on with a cancer patient, we don't actually know what to say. And because we as cancer patients tend to 
keep our thoughts and our emotions to ourselves, we're not making it any easier for um, those around us to know what to say. Um, but I, I think um, the important thing to understand is that um, you need to assume as a, a loving friend or caregiver to a cancer patient that the cancer patient is experiencing very complex um, emotions around the disease and that the cancer patient is feeling more than um, what's being communicated to you um, and that uh, the cancer patient um, is feeling the need to uh, withhold uh, information from you about um, what uh, he or she is thinking and feeling. Um, and it's hard because, you know, we want to jump in and we want to be, um, you know, a savior to our loving friends and, and family members uh, who are going through cancer. But we've never had an opportunity to prepare for this. So as, um, you know, a loving caregiver, we don't know what to say just as a cancer patient doesn't have a clue, you know, how to deal with it. Um, but, you know, I, again, I think if you start with the assumption that um, the patient is going through an emotional ordeal in addition to a physical one, um, and add to that the idea that um, uh, what they really want is somebody to understand them. What they really want is somebody to um, be with them in the moment, uh, experience the, um, uh, the, the turmoil that they're feeling, um, and then just be really careful about what we're saying so that we're aware of um, not adding a burden um, to the patient. You know, so often we'll say something like, you know, oh, we'll just, you know, be positive or, um, you know, I'm sure that, you know, if you keep an upbeat attitude, everything's going to be fine. It's like, well, how can I, you know, go to chemo treatment, deal with this incredible um, uh, fear that I have and put a smile on my face too. Why are you asking me to do one more impossible task? Um, just instead, just recognize that this is hard and say to the cancer patient, I'm so sorry. Um, this must be so hard. I'm here for you. I'm always going to be here for you. And that conveys a sense of understanding that it's hard, understanding that it's a, a complex set of emotions that somebody is going through and conveying a, um, uh, a message of, um, of support. Um, you want um, to make it clear that it's, uh, you know, that you are um, being sensitive to those unspoken feelings that you know are there rather than um, uh, adding to the burden. So from a caregiver perspective that I was, and also from my personality as a fixer, this becomes really hard to accept. And hearing you say that, Cynthia, I was going back to our first topic where we were talking about like the emotional and, and, and societal and just being able to, um, as a cancer patient, getting that hall pass, as we said, right? And so it's almost not, sim well, it's similar here where you have people that I think really struggle with this from a caregiver perspective now. This is from my perspective. 
on being able to say those things that you just said, because that is almost like for me as a fixer, it's like hard, like that's really, really difficult. And I'm sure there's people maybe out there listening, you know, naturally, um, you know, you see your loved one struggle regardless again of the cancer. It's just really hard to accept that emotionally. It is. And, and I think that as the caregiver, you know, of, yeah, as a, as a caregiver. And I think, I think one of the most important messages that caregivers could absorb is the idea of you talk, I'll listen. Mm -hmm. I don't have the answers because I don't know exactly what you're going through, but tell me what you're going through. Tell me what you're experiencing and I'm here for you. So it's not, and I can make it better for you, but it's, I'm here for you. And, and even something, you know, as simple as, you know, hang in there or keep a stiff upper lip, you know, that can be perceived as negative to somebody who is just so overwhelmed and you don't want to be making it harder for them. You want to be saying, you know, it's okay to feel bad. We all feel like crying sometimes, and you have more reason than most to cry, to feel upset, to feel overwhelmed. Um, you know, and, and I think the other thing that a caregiver can do is to set, is to, to really look hard at what the patient is going through and what the patients think about what the patient's life is like before and now, and try to fill those gaps in a way that, that respects the patient. So for instance, if the patient is, um, uh, a mom who used to, you know, drive the kids to school, um, you know, make lunches uh, for the kids, um, make sure the refrigerator was always full of nutritious um, foods, you know, shepherd the family around from this thing and that thing, um, and take care of the yard. You know, as a loving caregiver, friend, supporter, we can identify one thing that needs to be done and say, may I take care of this for you? May I help you by removing this burden from you? Um, but always in conversation, don't take away um, the patient's agency or um, sense of, of control over his or her life, but offer, may I do this um, one thing for you? And that, in order to offer that one specific thing, you've had to think about the patient. You've had to uh, observe um, his or her life enough to know how to help and then offer uh, that specific help, as opposed to Oh, let me know what I can do for you, which again, puts the burden back on the patient. Um, if your goal is to help unburden the patient, then you need to be a little bit more thoughtful. And it gets back to you talk, I'll listen. You express your concerns. I'm here for you. And then I'm going to help you with a specific thing that you need, that I can see that you need, and that I am offering to do for you with your permission. I can't wait for this topic because this is uh, this is going to be a fun one uh, when we do that episode. Our last piece here is self advocacy, um, and I know uh, you've talked a lot in the past. We have off topic, um, and on the previous podcast, uh, you know how to get the most out of your doctor patient relationship. Um, and so, let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, I think it's so important. Um, 
and when I when I work with patients today, I like to remind them that you know your doctor may be the expert in oncology or this particular type of oncology, but you are the only expert in you. You're the only one who knows what it's like to be you, what it's like to um, receive the treatment you're receiving in your body, um, how it feels to live in your skin, in your mind, um, in your particular cancer experience. And so I feel as if every time you um, work with your doctor, every time you, you, you know, go into the exam room, into the chemo suite or whatever, it is a conversation among equals, a conversation among experts. And just as your cancer uh, doctor is saying, okay, this is the next treatment protocol for you or asking, you know, how are you feeling about this? You need to be saying, this is what's going on in my body. This is what's going on in my brain. And how can we deal with this side effect? How can we um, address this concern? So that it, it's a dialogue. It's not a um, a doctor dictating and you're absorbing and obeying. It's a conversation. Uh, it's a real dialogue. And I think that that's hard because, you know, we've been taught um, white coats are, um, are, you know, godly and we have to do whatever they say. Um, and again, the stigmas around uh, particularly mental health, you know, have us not really comfortable talking about these issues, even with our doctor. But just as, you know, if you broke your leg, you would say, doctor, it hurts here. What can you do for my pain? Um, you need to be, you know, saying, doctor, it hurts inside my brain. What can we do for my pain? What can we do for my depression, my anxiety, my um, emotional volatility? What can we do for the fact that I am so tired? I can't get out of bed in the morning, much less walk for the 30 minutes that Cynthia thinks I should be doing. Um, doctor, what can we do for me given how I feel on this particular treatment on this particular day? And um, yeah, and get that dialogue going because uh, ultimately it benefits us um, to be more um, uh, conversational with our doctors as opposed to um, obedient. I love it. I love it. I cannot wait for this series to get kicked off. We're kicking it off here, but well, as we dive into these uh, subjects individually, Cynthia, it's been awesome to have you and I can't wait to see where this year goes with this series of podcasts. Thank you for being on the Project Purple podcast again, and we look forward to having you, bringing you back every quarter. Well, thank you so much, Dino. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And, and these are such um, important uh, subjects for all cancer patients and, and their caregivers. And I'm looking forward to being able to share whatever I've learned. Love it. Thank you for listening to our special episode with Cynthia Hayes, author of The Big Ordeal, Understanding and Managing the Psychological Turmoil of Cancer, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you can buy books. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you like what you heard today, feel free to share this episode. Follow us wherever you listen to podcasts and make sure to come back and listen to Cynthia's episodes throughout the year as we tackle these five major topics of understanding and managing cancer. Thank you for listening. Be safe. And that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Mm -hmm.